Well, we are uh, in a new chapter of Luke's Gospel, Luke uh, chapter 13, and let me pray. Lord, as we open your holy word, we ask for your Holy Spirit uh, to give us insight into the true meaning, and um, Lord, I pray that uh, you would apply these truths uh, to each one of us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So, it says, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, you go, what is going on here? Well, we have no extra biblical data about this event, but apparently Pilate the same governor who sentenced Jesus to be crucified, uh, he was not a good guy. And there were some Jews who came from the north of, of Israel, where Jesus lived, and they came to Jerusalem to offer an animal sacrifice, and Pilate had some soldiers go in and cut them down, and their blood mingled with the blood of the sacrifices. So, um, now, what's interesting is these people bring this up to Jesus, and they don't even really ask a question, but he does answer them. Now, um, when an event like this happens, people start asking questions. What are some of the questions you have when a tragic event happens? Well, well one question would be, was was this out of God's control? I mean, where was he? Or another question would be, um, maybe it's not out of his control. He's just not good, or he doesn't care. Okay. Or, or thirdly, maybe the issue's not with God. Maybe, maybe the issue's with these people who were cut down. Maybe they were worse sinners, and they got what they deserved. Right? So, so what, what's, what's being uh, dealt with here is called the problem of evil. When evil, death, pain, suffering happens, what are we to think about God and about the people and how, how do we sort this out? Right? So Jesus goes on and he says, and, and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way. No, I tell you. But here's what you are to think. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. So uh, there were some pillars. Si Siloam is a pool where people would go to get water. It's also where Jesus healed the man born blind. It's in Jerusalem, and apparently uh, a pillar accidentally fell and killed 18 people. So they bring up, the crowd brings up Pilate's massacre. Jesus brings up the falling pillar at Siloam. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Right? 
I uh, was on my home, my way home last week after the sermon. The first thing I do when I, I'm done with church is I start thinking about the next text. Okay, So like today, I'll be driving home, and I'm thinking my next text for next Sunday is the parable that Jesus is going to tell about uh, an unfruitful fig tree. So I'm thinking about that, and then I'm thinking, all right, for the youth group, I have to do question three in uh, the New City Catechism, and then for our ladies' Bible study, uh, Rita, we're in, a- in Acts 5, right? Acts 5, and then um, for our men's Bible study, we're in Romans 15, and for our small group, we're in Ecclesiastes 3 and 4, and uh, online I'm teaching uh, Isaiah 61, and at Moody I'm teaching Romans 4. So I got all that going on, right? But the number one thing I think about is the sermon for next week. So I'm driving home thinking about these falling towers and tragedy and so forth, and then uh, turn on the TV and heard about the helicopter that went down. And people start speculating, what are we to think here? And in essence, Jesus is saying this. When there's a tragic death, rather than spending a lot of time speculating on how sinful other people might have been, Really, this is a time for us to do some self-evaluation and repent. That's the lesson. Now, what I I do want to do is address some of these other questions that a passage like this raises. So I'm going to make four observations. So the first thing um, I want you to notice is this. Jesus does not defend God, in this case, by denying his sovereignty. You know, uh, I've shared this before with you. When I went to college, I was 18 years old, and uh, you could sign up for your classes, and I looked at all the classes, and I saw there was a class on logic. And I'm like, I want to be a logical person. So my first class, 9 a.m., Monday morning, DeSable Hall, was systematic logic, and we learned how to uh, reduce complex things to symbols and think logically in syllogisms. And we spent a couple of weeks on the problem of evil. The teacher said, well, if there is a God, let's at least agree on some attributes of God. Let's talk about the God of the Bible. Would you all agree that if God exists, he's all-powerful? And we Disgusted and said, yeah, yeah, God is all-powerful. And wouldn't you agree that God is all-loving? Yeah, we agree that God is all-loving. And would you agree that horrible suffering and death occurs? Yeah. Well, wait a minute. Why does that occur? If he's, uh, he's all-powerful, couldn't he stop it? And if he can and he doesn't, doesn't that mean he's not loving? The fact that evil exists means that this theoretical God is either not all-powerful or all-loving. Therefore, he doesn't exist. That's what I was hit with the first class 
at Northern Illinois University. Okay. Now, I just want you to know, by, and by the way, there are some theologians who do try to defend God by saying he isn't sovereign. He is not in control of all things, and they, they, they don't come right out and say it that way, but they say he has sovereignly chosen to abandon some of his sovereignty. Well, wait a minute. If you sovereignly choose to abandon your sovereignty, then you're not sovereign because you've abandoned your sovereignty. But he did it sovereignly, they say. But um, here's what I want you to know. Jesus doesn't go there. He could easily have said, yeah, the tower fell. Some things are out of God's control. Yeah, Pilate, you know, free will. Pilate chose to do it. There's nothing God could do. Jesus doesn't do that. As a Jew, and as God, Jesus would have affirmed everything that the Old Testament said. And here's an interesting verse, Psalm 139.16. It says, in your book, so David is talking to uh to God, he's praying in your book, in your record, God, were written every one of them. Every one of what? The days that were formed for me. What this is saying, David is saying, every single day of my life has already been written by God. There's a fixed amount of days that will happen. And notice it doesn't say, uh, you looked into the future to find out what would happen. No, these days were formed for me by God. Now, if this is true, if you have a fixed number of days, along with seven, other billion, seven billion other people on the planet, if that is sovereignly planned, then guess what? All the other details of the world must be under the sovereign control of God. How else could he get you to your end day along with the other 7 billion people and all the people who have ever lived? If you're not in control of the details and the viruses and the germs and the falling pillars and the trees and the car accident, if, if that's really out of control, how can he ensure that any of you or any of us will reach that sovereignly chosen day. Right. Well, how, how in control is God? Well, we could spend the whole time on the sovereignty of God, but here in Proverbs 16.33 it says, The lot, the die, is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Even those things that appear to be pure random, pure chance, are under the sovereign control of God. So, point number one. Notice, when the problem of evil is raised, Jesus doesn't try to defend God by denying God's sovereignty. Number two. Jesus doesn't defend God by denying God's goodness. Again, as a, as a Bible Believe as, as the Bible-believing Word of God Himself, Jesus would affirm Psalm 105, for the Lord is good. He has no sin, no evil in Him, as Isaiah says. He is holy, holy, holy. 
He is perfect and everything he does is perfect. Psalm 1830, this God, his way is perfect. Have you ever questioned the goodness of God? And I don't mean theoretically in a classroom. I mean when you're in pain, have you questioned whether God is good? Jesus doesn't go there. Third thing, Jesus doesn't defend God by calling the victims worse sinners. He raises that. He says, do you think that these victims were worse sinners than all the rest? No, I tell you. Let's do a little reminder of the relationship between death and sin. Sin entering into the world is the ultimate reason for all death, but it is not always the immediate reason for death. It's the ultimate, but it's not the immediate reason in every case. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, through, through Adam's sin, now death, has, has entered into the world. And so death spread to all men. Now here's where it gets tricky, because all sinned. But when you read the whole chapter, this can't mean that, that we die because we all individually sinned. It means that his, his uh, representation of us, we all sinned in Adam. That's why we all die. So death comes because sin has entered into the world. Okay? But, and here's where Jesus is going, there is not always a one-to-one correspondence between a dramatic death and a horrible sin. Now, sometimes there is. There's many times in the Bible when a sin takes place and God strikes a person dead. The, The sons of Aaron were priests and they offered strange fire before the altar. This is the first day of priestly ministry, and they did something wrong. We don't even know exactly what it was, and God sends down fire from heaven and strikes them dead. And then he says, hey, Aaron, you're not allowed to mourn. There's a direct correlation there between sin and death. Or uh, how about Pharaoh pursuing the Israelites through the Red Sea? Boom! He and the army put to death. Ananias and Sapphira lying about what they're giving. God strikes them down. Okay, So there are are many cases when there is a direct one-to-one correspondence between sin and death, but most of the time there isn't. In John chapter 9, Jesus is walking by a man born blind. And the apostles say, hey Jesus, i got a question. Who sinned? This man in the womb or his parents? That's what you call a false dilemma. The fallacy of the excluded middle. Learned that at logic class. They're saying there's option A or option B. He's saying, wait a minute. Neither sinned. This is for the glory of God. Now, ultimately, death and disease and pain 
can be traced back to sin entering into the world, but there is not always a one-to-one correspondence. Okay? Number four. There is a reason why God allows for tragedy. Now, sometimes it is punishment. Other times, it's just simply that person's appointed time to go. Most of the time, it's part of a bigger plan that we can't understand now, but we will in eternity future. I think I've used this illustration before. My mother used to do needlepoint, cross-stitch, so there was a piece of of, uh, burlap squeezed between those hoops, and she would use different colored threads, and if you look at the one side, you could see the picture, but if you turn it over on the other side, it's just a bunch of threads, different colors. It makes no sense. It's kind of ugly. That's, that's us now. makes no sense, but one day we're going to turn it over and we're going to go, oh, I spoke too soon, like Job. You have to trust that God, yes, allows pain and suffering and death, but you cannot go there. You cannot say he is unjust. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's evil. Uh, Our small group has decided to study the book of Ecclesiastes. And here in chapter 3, Solomon says, For everything, there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And and this time word um, means an appointed time, an appropriate time. Time to be born and a time to die. Time to plant and a time to pluck up. What is planted? A time to kill and a time to heal. There's an appropriate time. But here's what's frustrating. You get to the end of the poem, and he says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. The frustrating thing is we do have these eternal questions, but we can't figure it all out. And one of the messages of Ecclesiastes is don't. Just trust that God is good. Now, we have to be careful that we never accuse God of being unfair, unjust. Right? God would be perfectly just and fair to terminate our lives the moment we sin, like he did with Hophni and Phinehas, the, uh, the sons of Aaron. Or remember Uzzah who touches the ark to steady it and God strikes him dead. And David's response is he's angry. And some have tried to say, oh, he was probably angry at himself. Or, no, I think he was angry at God. Ananias and Sapphira They lie during the offering. God strikes them dead. We we can look at that and say, that's unfair. Well, here's what's fair. Okay, The wages of sin is death. 
the fact that you took another breath this morning or a second ago is pure grace because what's fair is, is to be struck down the moment you sin. There's a, a, a classic illustration that R.C. Sproul tells um, when he was starting out, he was a professor and he had a, at a college, he had a class of, I think it's like 300 Old Testament students. And he said, here's the rules. There's three papers in this class. Due on the last day of September, October, and November. If you turn it in late, you get an F. Everybody understand? And they all, yes, professor, we understand. First day comes. First due date comes. 25 students have their head down and they say, oh, professor, we're freshmen. We don't know how to manage our time. We're still in kind of high school mode. Will you please have mercy on our souls? And he says, all right, I'll give you an extension. Next due date, October, end of October. Do you think there were more or less late students? More. Word got out that he's a softie. There were 50 students who asked for an extension, and he granted it. Last day of November, 100 students asked for an extension, and he got upset. He grabs his grade book, and he starts calling out grades, and he says, do you have your paper? And if you didn't have your paper, he would give you an F. And then there was grumbling. And he could hear them saying, that's unfair. And he goes, oh, that's unfair. Okay. Uh, Jones, I seem to remember that not only were you late this time, but last time, and you want to be fair, F for both papers. And suddenly they realized that they were presuming upon his grace to such an extent that if he didn't extend grace, they considered that to be unfair. Every one of us has deserved to be struck down a million times already. But the fact that we are still alive, breathing, is pure grace. Now, let me, let me add one more piece to this, this puzzle. You say, well, why would God allow for this? My, my answer is, there's a plan. He's working it all together for good. And remember that we are in an exception. We are in a, a time period, it's from the fall of Adam until God restores all things. That's when there's death and, and, and pain and suffering. But for eternity, he will do away with that. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We are living in the, the exception time. 
right now. Now, last point, which is the main point. Others' death, other people's death, is always a time for self-examination and repentance. The point is not to speculate on how sinful they must have been. Rather, when there's sudden death, you should say, what if today's my last day? I should say, what if today's my last day? Now, notice that Jesus says, no, they were not worse sinners, but if you don't, and he doesn't say if you don't have faith, he says if you don't repent, you too will perish. You say, wait a minute, I thought you're saved by faith. You are, you're saved by faith alone. Salvation is by faith alone, but a saving faith is a repentant faith. What does that mean? I'll do my my little illustration. Some of you have seen it for years. Repentance is a change of heart. If this is Jesus over here, sin is turning your back on Jesus and pursuing your own agenda. Faith is turning to Jesus. Repentance is the turning away from sin. You say, but it's the same thing. Well, it really is. They're they're two distinct things on paper, but you can't separate them. You cannot have faith in Jesus without repentance. So, in essence, he's calling them to believe in him, And in that act of turning to him, of course, you're turning away from the sin which is going to condemn you. So, as we head into communion, I just want to call us to repent. Maybe some have never truly repented and come to Christ for salvation. But I don't know about you, I continually sin. And communion is a time to remember that sin. And and repentance isn't just feel bad about it and keep doing it. It's a turning away from it. So, look at these words. The Apostle Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, be careful that you don't misunderstand eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. An unworthy manner is not that, that, oh, you need to be perfect to take communion. No, no. You actually need to be a sinner to take communion. What would be unworthy is to not examine yourself and not acknowledge your sin. And in an unworthy manner would also be maybe to acknowledge your sin and say, oh well, I'm going to continue. 
So, uh, as we approach the table this morning, will you, whatever sin comes to mind, repent and lay it at the foot of the cross?